Hello again, everybody, and welcome into another edition of Political Beats, a presentation of National Review. Find us on Twitter at Political Beats and jump in the conversation. We invite you to subscribe to our feed to get new episodes right to you. iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or TuneIn, or right there at nationalreview.com. You can listen, enjoy, share, and leave reviews. My name is Scott Bertram. Find me on Twitter at Scott Bertram. My tag team partner, standing by as always, Jeff Blair. Jeff, how are you? Hey, I'm fine. Uh, I'm just warning you right now, though, Scott. You can leave this podcast, but it's going to cost you. Mm. <laughs> we'll learn more about that a little bit later. Uh, at Esoteric CD is where to find Jeff on Twitter. And today's uh, guest on the program is a co-host of The Fifth Column and a partner at Freethink, where he helps produce original content about the people and ideas helping to reshape the world. Uh, Camille Foster is with us. You can find him on Twitter at Camille, K-M-E-L-E. Camille, thanks for joining us here on Political Beats. Thanks so much for having me, Scott and Jeff. Appreciate it. Before we get to the artist and uh, your explanation of why you love him so much, we get a little background on the guest himself. Camille Foster, how did you kind of get involved in this political ecosystem? It's a somewhat unusual uh, trajectory for me. Um, I, I went to school for biochemistry, and I was confident that I would be working as a lab technician someplace over at NIH, um, or at least maybe developing pharmaceuticals. Who knows? Uh, but it was at the University of Maryland. It was far too close to D.C., and uh, I went home during my first winter break and found myself watching C-SPAN relentlessly. And... Um, somewhere along the line, uh, decided that maybe I should try my hand at government and economics and uh, got an internship at this place called Talk Radio News Service uh, hmm. and shortly found myself hanging out in the lower press office in the White House and lurking around the halls of the Capitol building and really kind of fell in love with politics before sort of falling out of love with it. Um, and I suppose what made me fall out of love with it was kind of working in the news business. Uh, <laughs> did a, a tour of duty over the News Corp building where I hosted this nightly show called uh, The the Independence, which was on the air for a little over a year. Um, and I love the team there. Um, and I loved having the opportunity to, to sort of think about um, these stories uh, sort of over the long run, because this was, again, a nightly news show. Um, but I think having to cover, especially the political angle of things so closely for so long, uh, really made me pretty pessimistic about the prospects for our politics. So I'm still deeply interested in political philosophy and have uh, some, some very high ideals uh, so far as that goes. But I'm, I'm pretty pessimistic uh, about our politics, which, which makes me a, a reluctant pragmatist, if that makes sense. Well, on a positive note, I do just want to say go Terps. Uh, <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> Yeah, always go Terps. Uh, Maryland Terps here, right? Yeah. And that's, of course, uh, you know why we don't talk politics at all here. Uh, it's just music. <laughs> Amen. You don't have to worry about that whatsoever. And uh, the music we talk about today, and in the, in the the chosen uh, artist of uh, Camille Foster is a gentleman who helped shape the sound of Motown in the 1960s, both as a player and a writer, and of course a vocalist, an artist, and later a string of. Uh, well, moderately successful. I mean, some were very successful, some were not uh, during the 1970s. And, and then a huge comeback in the early 1980s. It is Marvin Gaye, our artist today on Political Beats. And uh, Camille, we turn the uh, floor back over to you it's for you to explain why you love Marvin Gaye, how you got into him and why anybody else should really care about Marvin Gaye. 
Well, it's funny, as we were getting ready to, to record this conversation, I went back and I, I thought really hard about the first time I would have heard Marvin Gaye. Um, and I suspect my initial memories are probably going to relate to like uh, sexual healing. Mm. Um, that was the Marvin Gaye of my youth, Marvin Gaye of the 1980s. But Marvin is a guy who has really spanned several decades and had hits in several different decades uh, musically. Um, and uh, my appreciation for his broader catalog is something that I didn't develop until I, I went away actually to University of Maryland. Um, and I was there when Napster was a thing. Um, and you could just grab oh, gigabytes of music from these artists. And I, I remember scoring like just whole, whole, um, hard drives full of music and eventually <laughs> making my way around to Marvin Gaye's albums. And it wasn't any of the things that I think he's probably best known for that really caught my attention initially. And, and I know we're going to talk about some of the albums later, um, but it was I Want You, which was mm. uh, one of his albums from the 1970s, like 1976, maybe. Um, and that album was just so spectacular to me. And it was something that actually had all of these elements that were so familiar to me because so many of the neo-soul artists that were prominent while I was in high school um, and R&B artists before that, but had been drawing on Marvin for inspiration. And you could really hear it in the source material. To the catalog and I found these beautiful, wonderful extended um, albums where you've got these great demo tracks and um, all these things where you could hear Marvin really utilizing his voice as, as an instrument. Just these, these amazing layered compositions where he's clearly improvising and, and feeling his way through the music. I just think Marvin is a, a singular talent uh, who has done some really remarkable things who I suspect a lot of people kind of underappreciate, uh, especially because there's kind of the sexually charged mm -hmm. nature of a lot of his material. Uh, but there's a there's a richness and a depth um, in the in the composition and in his in his catalog that I think a lot of folks don't don't really get at first pass. So hopefully by the end of our exchange, <laughs> they'll appreciate a little bit more. Before Jeff takes it very quickly, because I don't want to belabor this point, we have much to get to, but I will mention that I, I am pretty sure, thinking back, my initial uh, uh, my initial exposure to Marvin Gaye was exclusively through the California Raisins. Uh, <laughs> I actually bought the California oh, Raisins Sing the Hits album, which yes. featured, oh, no. I heard it through the grapevine, at least their version of it. So I, I am pretty sure that was my first exposure to you, Marvin you, Gaye. You know who the lead vocalist on that was, by the way? The guy who's actually singing those songs is Buddy Miles. Okay. Of uh, you know Blue Cheer and of um uh, uh the, the Jimi Hendrix Band of Gypsies album. He's the drummer. That's the guy <laughs> who's singing those songs. <laughs> 
I mean, you use the funny thing about Marvin Gaye. It's like almost terrifying to me to throw my arms around this catalog because it's so immense. I mean, mm-hmm. the, the thing about Gaye for me is like just like Scott and just like you know, Camille, like, you know, what was my first experience with, with Marvin Gaye? Yeah, I think the first thing I ever saw of his was Sexual Healing when I was like, that's a Marvin Gaye song. But of course, then I realized that, of course, there were things that I'd been hearing on oldies radio and stuff that, you know, my mom or my dad would have in the car uh, as we were driving around that were his as well. Like, Ain't No Mountain High Enough, Holy Guacamole, what a song. And then mm-hmm. What's Going On, Mercy, Mercy Me. But the, the thing that actually kind of blows my mind the most is that I didn't realize how just absolutely fundamentally important he is to modern music, modern pop, rock, soul, R&B music. Until I went out, you know, and just, you know, these, these are the things that I was doing in college, you know. Uh, you know, Napster was one thing, but me, I was a box set aficionado. So I went out and I bought this thing. I saw it on a back wall in my local record store called, you know, The Master. It's a four-CD Marvin Gaye box set. And uh, it, it was actually befuddling to me how I had never heard these songs mm-hmm. because they weren't being played on the radio, even oldies radio, despite the fact that Marvin Gaye was a massive hit maker. Tons of top 10 hits, number ones. He was everywhere during the 60s. Um, th- I, I actually didn't know these songs, but I also knew a lot of them because I knew them because everybody else I listened to had covered them. And that's the thing. Marvin yes. Gaye's stuff isn't just notable on himself. He's created so many great cover versions, like Baby Don't You Do It. Uh, it's a song that I, you know, I it has been done in, in incredible, memorable versions by not only Gay himself, but also by the band, by the Who. sweet it is to be loved by you i used to love the grateful dead's cover version of that hitchhike hitchhike was done first by the rolling stones and then um the velvet underground ripped off the rolling stones version and then the smiths ripped off the velvet underground's version (laughs) of hitchhike to do um uh what is it uh there's a light that will never go out so like this 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 chain of inheritance this musical inheritance goes on so far beyond his original discography but when you go back and you listen to all those singles in the 60s and you tie it in with basically the story of motown i'd argue he is you, you could talk about the supremes the temptations the four tops Stevie Wonder, all these great classic Motown artists, Martha. Michael Jackson. Michael Jackson. Michael Jackson's later. The Jacksons are in the 70s. I'm thinking like Motown 60s. Hmm. He made them a hit-making proposition. Mm -hmm. Um, Because Motown, I guess this is where the story has to start. You can't talk about Marvin Gaye until you understand what Motown Records was, formed by Barry Gordy, of course. Barry Gordy is one of the most famous perhaps infamous figures in music history. You know, he, he took, you know, the black Detroit 
great soul sound and he, he turned it into a money-making monster um and of course his particular relationship with marvin gay was uniquely fraught because gay didn't just clash with gordy all the time it's actually kind of funny to see how often gay would submit a single to barry gordy and gordy would say like i'm not going to release it as a single it'll never sell and then the <laughs> single that he wanted to release turned out to be her i heard it through the grapevine <laughs> so it's like maybe, maybe maybe barry might have you know you know benefited from a second opinion on that one but of course he married barry gordy's sister anna gordy and so like he was tied up in motown's you know the personal interpersonal and not just musical and financial relationships more tightly than maybe any other member of that label and he was their big hit maker so to really understand motown first you got to understand where it came from this is an out this is a label that had started off doing you know the, the classic r&b soul sounds and 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 made the real barry gordy had the realization that you know like you know i don't have to sell this to a niche audience this doesn't just have to be music you know for the african-american market uh he said this can be national huge music he was right but he wasn't really proven right until marvin gay was his first true breakout artist gay had started off uh signing with motown and he kind of had his his, his idea of himself as he wanted to be like a jazz singer or a crooner mm-hmm. and he recorded a couple early albums like that that, that frankly are, aren't that good i guess maybe you know maybe he might have developed a style in that way if he'd kept going but he, it doesn't sound, sound like what we think of when we think of classic gay the soulful moods of marvin gay it's not an album you need to hear uh what really happened though is in 1962 this is back about a bit as early as political beats has ever gone that's when he recorded stubborn kind of fella that's when he wrote hitchhike that's when he did pride and joy and all of a sudden motown was pumping out enormous hit singles and they were on the back of marvin Gaye. and then all of the other great you know you know diana ross you know the four tops the temptations all of those other artists followed on after that because uh motown had this great stable of songwriters uh but gay was really there first and so i guess you know you got to divide his career up in, into two, I think, chunks to make any sense of it. You talk about his his '60s era, you know, where he's a singles artist, really. He, you know, he has these albums, but the albums themselves are, you know, they're never very. Um, coherent and in fact the rap on motown was formed a lot of times on the basis of marvin gay albums but also like stevie wonder albums where they'd have like three or four incredible songs that were hits and then the rest of the stuff was just sort of like product it wasn't that great uh but who cares when your early run of singles beginning from 1962 going up all the way until he started doing the duets which is i guess the next phase we'll get to later uh who cares when the songs are that good there are so many iconic numbers from this early year I almost despair of being able to get to them all. And in fact, I know we won't be able to get to them all. So I guess the first thing I'd like to say or throw it out to you guys, Camille or Scott, you guys can go first of that early hit making Motown, early 60s phase of gays before Tammy Terrell, before I heard it from the grapevine. What are the ones that leap out to you? Because you could choose so many. Now, I heard you mention it already, um, but Stubborn Kind of Fellow, which Ooh, was really yeah. sort of the first time Marvin began to find this this style that he, I think, would utilize throughout a lot of that early phase in the 1960s. Um, but it's just such a phenomenal song, like the little yay, yay, yay riff that it opens with mm-hmm. um, is just kind of vintage Marvin. I can almost imagine him um, improvising that into existence in the studio. <laughs> Um, so I've, I've listened to that one over and over again.
and for me, I'm trying to make sure I have dates right here. You know, from from really early, Pride and Joy is one that almost has that that uh, kind of jazzy uh, vocal style that Jeff mentioned earlier. But it's a it's just a really nice croon that he's able to deliver before some some vocal gymnastics towards the end of the song. Uh, I like Pride and Joy. Uh, Baby, don't you do it? Uh, I think it's still in that in that pre duet era. Oh uh, God, it's so good. The Holland mm. Dozier Holland song. It's just an amazing track. And one of the first times I think that he's he's making the most um, or, or, or realizing how to make the most of that of that musical instrument that is his voice in communicating heartbreak. Uh, it's got just a great driving melody and, and those verses ascend up the up the notes. Um, and then uh, Ain't That Peculiar would be, I think, 66, which is right around when the duets start taking off. And I, I just mentioned Ain't That Peculiar is one of my favorite Marvin Gaye tracks. Man, the track is so super, super strong. It's actually mixed in a way at least the voices where, where the instrumentation uh, almost crowds out his vocals. But, of course, it's hard to crowd out a Marvin Gaye vocal. Um, I, I can listen to that bass figure that opens the song yeah. with the piano yeah. on re- with the piano like like playing that downward like line. I could re- I could put that on repeat and listen to it for an entire hour. I wouldn't get tired of it. It's just so perfect. Like the things you do and say are designed to make me blue. It's a doggone shame my love for you makes all your lies seem true. I mean, that's <laughs> just the sort of thing he'd deliver over and over again, especially as you get through the in, into the seventies, of course. There's something uh something you said, Jeff, when you mentioned that those those albums like the soulful sounds of Marvin Gaye, all those attempts at him you know, becoming uh like a, a Frank Sinatra esque character. Yeah. Um the the fact that you just came out and said it that it, these are not very good albums. I, I want to say thank you for that. I've always <laughs> yeah. felt like it's almost blasphemous for me to feel that way uh, when listening to those. But one thing that they really do allow you to get is a glimpse of a, a, a man, a young man who's really just starting to find his way musically um, and who is perhaps trying to force himself into a genre that is perhaps not best for him. But you do kind of get a sense of the progression as you listen to like this early segment of Marvin's catalog and these different styles that he's experimenting with um, that I think makes it all the more remarkable when you go and listen to some of the stuff that he did in the, in the 1970s I mean, uh, later on that he's better known for. There's no shame in, in making that point because, I mean, hey, have you ever listened to any early Stevie Wonder albums? Now, of course, Stevie was like, you know, like 
what is it, 11 years old? What you uh, yeah, it's a little different. <laughs> it's a little different. But like, you know, that that was, you kind of became the knock on Motown. You got like, you know, your three hit singles and then a bunch of Dross and these mm-hmm. albums. And Gay and Wonder kind of simultaneously were the ones who revolted against the Motown factory approach to right. album making. Um, but like, you know, but those singles are so great. Like you know, The funny thing about early Gay is, is, to, is to realize when you hear, you, you think of them as sexual healing, let's get it on, that kind of stuff. And then go back and listen to something like Stubborn Kind of Fella or Can I Get a Witness? Yeah. And you realize that it's, he has a much rougher sound. Mm-hmm. He, he's R&B as opposed to maybe soul. Yes. He's got like a, like, like a, a rasp in his voice. You know, I mean, Stubborn Kind of Fella is probably as good a, a, you know, a debut hit as you can have. You know, you know the incredible drumming on that. I, I don't know which member of like the... Um, the house band was playing drums that day, but it's just amazing stuff. The only thing that undercuts it is that typical Motown touch, which is the flutes, the flute <laughs> solo. I mean, it was just a little bit silly. You know, that, that, it's classic Barry Gordy kind of having a conservative tendency in his hit making, uh, you know, the sound that he heard in his head. But, you know, Hitchhike uh, is a song that I love so much because everyone was influenced by it. You know, the, the Stones saw Gay doing it when they played them. They had a co-bill with him in 1964 on the Tammy show, one of these great early rock documentaries just great james brown is there you know the stones are there marvin gay is there the beach boys are there this is one of these like you can't believe they all got together in the same concert hall and played together but it happened kind of shows uh, and he played hitchhike and the stones said hey you know what we're going to do our version of that i'm going to sail but my next stop i just might be thing is as much as i love the stones the one black artist that they never quite succeeded in being able to cover was marvin Gaye. they tried a couple of his songs and they never pulled them off uh because nobody can sing like marvin Gaye. and and the other classic example of that is can i get a witness it's the most rock simple like Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, piano chords, dun 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 dun, just simple changes. But you know, the, the histrionics, the gospel histrionics that come out of Marvin Gaye's early gospel career. You know, when it, you know when you're singing in the church with his family, uh, it just works so well. You know, can I get a witness? And can I get a witness? And you just want to just get up and like just start swaying back and forth with your palms out in the air because it just pulls so so powerful. Can I get-
And uh, the other thing I just want to say about the, the early Marvin Gaye era is that you just got to give a ton of credit to Holland, Dozier Holland, the classic Motown songwriting team. These guys not only wrote stuff like Can I Get a Witness, they wrote, you know, they, they did like, you know, Baby Don't You Do It, mm-hmm. you know, Ain't That Peculiar. But I mean, these also did like Reach Out, I'll Be There, you know, which is wow. <laughs> so one of the, and the, that's for, you know, the Four Tops, one of the great singles of all time. Uh, Motown had a formula, uh, but my god that formula worked and i guess by the way you know he, he had i'll be doggone was it was a number one hit pretty little baby was a number one hit fantastic but the one maybe i just want to give some special focus to before we get to the duets era is uh you're the one for me uh which i actually think might be the best marvin gay 60s single it's not the most successful of them but hmm. the, his, his pleading voice and and it opens with that incredible harmonium i think it's a harmonium or it's an organ perhaps that line that descends on you and it's it's not like an up-tempo uh you know r&b song it's him in his 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 begging pleading ballad mode and i really want to single it out because i just think it's one of the ones when you think of like the iconic marvin Gaye songs that you don't hear mentioned nearly as often and it should be it's got the motown strings it's got you know some of those uh, sort of 60s you know you know traits that you associate with the classic house style but god it's so beautiful and i just think it's one of the most underrated things that he ever did There's something I wanted to ask uh, since I'm, I'm talking to musicologists here. Yeah. Um, <laughs> when when I when I think about kind of the contemporary popular music scene, like there's a lot of disposable pop music these days. Stuff that it seems like somebody recorded in their closet about 15 minutes before <laughs> it, it got to the radio station, or oh, yeah. however however we discover music now before it was uploaded to SoundCloud. And it's it's interesting that so many of the the hits that came out of Motown kind of came through a similarly yes. kind of hurried process that there was very much kind of a, a quantity over quality situation going out going Dude, on it was, it was the assembly line yeah, yeah. it, it worked it gets you it gets you it gets you some hits but it gets you a lot of kind of forgettable things and there's yeah. ob- an obvious willingness to experiment and to re-record the same song over and over again with different artists and exactly engineer it within a slightly different way 
I mean, that's the thing. There's a lot of these great hits that, that Marvin Gaye did that we'll talk about that were also recorded by other artists at the same time. And mm-hmm. it was almost like they were like doing A-B testing, right? <laughs> so like, I heard it through the grapevine. Classic yeah. example. That was first recorded by Gladys Knight in the Pips. Gaye did his version first. Yeah. And then yeah. the, cla- the story is hilarious. You know, he, he did his version first and you know, submitted it to Barry Gordy, you know, who was basically, you know, the, the de facto tyrant of, of the label. They had a quality control you know section in, in Motown that would say like this is a good song we approve it for release but then Gordy would overrule them if he didn't think it was a hit so he said no Marvin I don't like your version it's too slow put Just it crazy. in the can and so, he, <laughs> so he insisted Gladys Knight record another version uh, which is much faster and was the first one released and it was actually kind of a minor hit uh, but then you know Marvin's went on to his like album and DJs of course found it and they started playing Chicago it. DJ so, in fact yeah, and so Barry Gordy just always just like, oh shit, I was wrong. <laughs> so they, they released the song as a single, and of course it becomes. I mean, that stupid book written by Dave Marsh, you know, like the one, the heart of rock and soul, the one thousand and one greatest singles ever released. This is number one. That's the number one single that was chosen by him. And I don't, I'm actually not a huge fan of Marsh as a rock critic, but uh, uh, he, he's right about the greatness of I Heard It Through the Grapevine. Uh, and it just goes to show you that, that Barry Gordy, as much as he, he, was, he was ahead of the curve, he was a futurist in the late 50s. He was on top of every wave in the early 60s, but then he was kind of beginning to lose his fastball by the late 60s and then the 70s he was uh, i think fundamentally conservative in his musical outlook and he had a style that he liked and he wanted to stick with and i didn't appreciate people like gay or like some of his younger producers and songwriters who saw that music was changing and then other things that weren't standard like you know flutes mm-hmm. and strings kind of stuff mm-hmm. could mm-hmm. be commercially successful and uh, you know that that's why, you know, the story of I Heard It Through the Grapevine is so emblematic. And, of course, the same thing would happen later on with what's going on. But before we get there, you know, the other thing about gay is he had all these early hit singles. And then they just made the decision to say, you know what, why don't we do some duets with you? Um, you know, well, maybe pair you up with a couple of other artists in the Motown stable. And the first one they did, I think, was with Mary Wells early on. He did a couple with her, which are good. Uh, not not top shelf, but they're good enough. And then with Kim Weston was the one where he had his first big hit, It Takes Two. And that's one of those other ones that you'd still hear on, like, oldies radio every now and then. And but of 62,000 were- commercials. Yeah, that's <laughs> right. Exactly. You know, it's it's a good song. It's not a great song. But really, where this took off and kind of made him, I'd say, the greatest sort of duet artist ever was his partnership with Tammy Terrell, uh, a woman who he, he really had a soft spot for. Uh, and, you know, personally, they were great friends. And her story is just a sad story because she, she um, you know, she was diagnosed. She collapsed on stage with Marvin in 1967 uh, and just found out she had a brain tumor. Um, and uh, then she eventually died of it, I think, in 1969. But the music they recorded together uh, probably kind of the peak of that art form in popular music and there's no greater peak than that than well a song that actually says it right there ain't no mountain high enough um, I don't know what you guys think about this but I think it's one of the finest things that it recorded during the entire decade that drama of those opening beats alone the snare the kick and then the side snare taps and that descending bass line and Marvin says listen baby you're absolutely <laughs> listening to every single note from then onward because he's like ain't no mountain high ain't no valley too low and oh god what a magnificent piece of music 
Tammy and Marvin recorded so many amazing things. Um, Your precious love um, it, it ain't nothing like the real thing. Yeah. Like even the the names of those songs alone. Yes. Like to to string them together, I get a little bit of a chill. Um, thinking about it, just the quality of the music that they produced together, and that 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 amazing combination of Marvin's like loud, powerful um, voice and just kind of this sweet, syrupy. Uh, soprano of of uh, Tammy Terrell, um, and yeah, it really is like uh, her story um, and Marvin's piece of it as well. Is just it's really tragic, uh, and and I believe that's where a lot of the 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 performance anxiety that he would experience for the rest of his life um, derived from his experience with Tammy. Because in the early days, the Motown artists would all tour together, mm-hmm. and it would be you know these massive productions where Stevie Wonder is opening for Marvin Gaye. Um, but later on in life, they'd have a very, very hard time getting Marvin on the road and keeping him on the road, um, both because of his sort of demons when he was struggling with addiction and other things, um, but also because of this just, I can only imagine the jarring experience of having someone you've sat in the studio with, you sort of are looking at them as you're recording these lines, essentially singing to them uh, about your love, although I, I don't believe they were ever romantically involved. Um, although it's entirely possible knowing Marvin um, <laughs> um, and, and having her essentially just get get suddenly all of a sudden get sick and pass away at a young age. Um, it's just it's got to be staggering. One of the great things about going through the Motown catalog is finding those ones that slip through the radio cracks, meaning ones that, just, that are not played or not used in commercials or movie soundtracks. And, and Jeff mentioned two of the really big ones from Terrell and, and Gay. There's two I want to focus, or at least mention, that are, are not incredibly well-known. One is uh, If I Could Build My Whole World Around You, mm. which is a fantastic song, and it pushes it to another level. There's a key change for the very final verse in that song that just takes it up another notch. It just sung so well, and as uh, Camille was saying, you know, the... the um, the way that she grounds his his passionate and and at this stage of his career, you know, kind of gruff delivery is amazing in songs like this. And the other one, which uh, which a similar theme is "You're All I Need to Get By," uh, Ashford and Simpson, who wrote a bunch of songs for Tammy Terrell and Marvin Gaye, wrote that one. And what I a think, magnificent song! Man, I think <laughs> that so is good. one of the last or the last one they did together. I, I know it was right after she had uh, one of her brain surgeries that she was in the studio struggling to kind of get this one out and if you listen to the track you hear Marvin Gaye actually saying come on Tammy and that you know that's that's him literally encouraging her to, to finish this song and sing her way through come on darling. 
And uh, man, those two paired, again, because the themes are so similar. Oh, I just love those so much. Yeah, I've seen some later performances uh, where he would would redo these songs with other artists, and and it's odd. And I don't know if it's just me or what I'm projecting, perhaps. But there's always perhaps just this this like longing look on his face, almost like a bit of disappointment with mm-hmm. some of the people he's getting matched up with to try and fill Tammy's um, shoes, and and they're never never quite able to get there, despite how spectacular some of those performances are. Yeah, it's it's never going to be the same thing. And of course, the story there is, well, I mean, it's it's high drama, um, and it's probably worth actually covering briefly. You know, so like uh, they recorded those two duet albums, uh, the first two, uh, you know, uh, Your Precious Love and Ain't No Mountain High Enough are from the first one, but uh, then you you all need to get bias from the second one. And there was a third album called Easy. But it's like highly disputed whether Tammy Terrell actually even sings on that album or whether Valerie Simpson, you know, Ashford and Simpson actually is just doing her vocals for her. And I got to admit, the songs, because they're, they're Ashford and Simpson songs, they're good songs. You know, mm-hmm. what he gave me is a good song, but he doesn't sound like her to me. And this is when she was really kind of in her end stage, you know, of, of brain cancer. And, uh, you know, it, it's just. You know, Gay was, as as Camille pointed out, was was so traumatized by this entire experience, you know, of watching, you know, his like, you know, his major collaborator sort of waste away, uh, that I think it really ended up affecting him for, throughout the rest of the seventies. I think mm-hmm. it really kind of fortified him in his decision about what to do with the rest of his musical career from that mm-hmm. point onward. And I also think it's really telling that uh, uh, Tammy Terrell's parents, her family. Were, were very embittered by the whole situation. I think they didn't feel like Motown had really cared for Tammy. They didn't take, didn't do a good job in, in 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 caring for her despite her health problems that they exploited her. And so when when she died, uh, they forbid everybody from the Motown family from attending her funeral. So no Barry Gordy, no Anna Gordy, none of the other you know, Smokey Robinson, Ashford Simpson. None of those people were allowed to come at all, except Marvin Gaye. It's the only one they had, and he delivered the eulogy, um, which is kind of a testament to, to how close they were and how much that relationship meant to him. I think the one thing I also want to point out is that, you know, simultaneously with these duet albums, he was also putting out some of his own solo work at the mm-hmm. same time. I heard it through the grapevine being the most famous example of it. Uh, and, and these albums, again, have that problem where in the late 60s, like MPG and um, That's the Way Love Is, where you've got two or three great songs and then you have a bunch of stuff that it's never bad. I mean, does anybody ever get offended at hearing Marvin Gaye sing to them? No. <laughs> it's like, I'll, I'll, I'll listen to him sing the phone book, but they're not, they're not really distinguished. But there's one particular song that I really need to point out. And that's off of that's the way love is, which is not a good album. It's basically him doing covers of other Motown artists for the most part, temptations and stuff like that. Uh, and, uh, but he does a Beatles cover. And, you know, this is a song that very nearly made it on to our episode that Scott and I did a while back about our favorite cover songs. Mm. We, had all, we had a whole subsection devoted to Beatles covers. And, uh, you know, I, I actually included a couple other great soul ones like Wilson Pickett doing Hey Jude. And I almost included Marvin Gaye's version of Yesterday. I kind of now wish I had because the more <laughs> I've listened to it these days, the more impressed I am with it. It's This is a song that is 
so overdone, so overcovered, so overplayed that the idea of ever being able to come up with like an interesting or fresh take or a renewed take on it is impossible. And yet Marvin Gaye did it and he did it by basically rewriting the entire piece. The basic skeletal structural outfit of yesterday is still there, but Marvin takes it to a completely different place. And he's really working his way into that that classic soul voice by the end of the 60s. The way he sings that last verse is just uh, some of the most magical, uh, pure vocalizations that he ever gave to the world. And I just ask people, like, if you think you've heard yesterday and you think you're tired of, you know, hearing it, uh, hear Marvin Gaye sing it and you're going to feel differently. I second every single word of that. I'd also commend um, Donnie Hathaway's uh, cover of Yesterday to folks. Yeah, that, that's actually, you know, I was talking about this with uh, somebody else on Twitter just the other day. Donnie Hathaway's and, and Marvin Gaye's. That's number number two and number one for me. I think Gaye's yeah. better just because it's so brazenly like it just takes it and turns it into a completely different song while still keeping the essence of it. Well, I must have said Quickly before uh, we, we leave, I know you, you had spent a few minutes talking about I Heard It Through the Grapevine a few minutes ago, but to talk about the actual song is, uh, it, it might be the best Motown single ever. I, you know, I think there's a, there's a healthy competition for that, but it is such a perfect song from start to finish. Uh, it really, really is. And j- the way it starts, that, that, that drum crack uh, that opens the song, leading to the, the, the foreboding organ and guitar. And I love that, that tambourine that is like a rattlesnake waiting to strike just before mm. Marvin Gaye's lyrics begin. all tension there's no release in that song it's all kind of paranoia and hurt and anger uh that these rumors that he's hearing through the grapevine might be true that she's leaving him and hasn't had the you know the guts to tell him herself um man for all of it is just outstanding and uh, it's hard to believe then you would hear that and say i'm not sure that's a single i'm not sure people are going to like it it is just breathtaking at its brilliance Ah, it was too slow, Scott. What can you say? Uh, Barry Gordy clearly had a, the hit-making instinct. <laughs> By the way, do you want to do you want to then now cue us up 
for the big kind of sea change, the shift in Marvin Gaye's career, which comes with uh, a song that he recorded in 1970, and he again submitted to Barry Gordy, uh, who said, no, this is a piece of crap. We can't yeah. release this. Uh, yeah. this, will, this will never sell. This is this is one of the worst. I think he, I think Gordy described it as one of the worst pieces yes. of garbage that he'd ever heard. Yep, that's what he said about uh, uh, a little song called uh, "What's Going On." On <laughs> a, a song that that Gay, you know, that I think that, that the form of it had been given to a friend who wrote like the basic music, the chords, and then you know said this is a good song, and it was originally cast as like a love song, and then Gay started talking to his brother Frankie uh, about his experiences in Vietnam. Frankie was you know serving there, like writing letters back home, and Gay turned it into kind of like a social, a cultural protest song, which I think is what Gordy was allergic to. He didn't mm. want Motown to be doing like you know relevant topical music. He figured that was a great way to get yourself uh, knocked off of playlists, probably in like you know the deep south or something like that you know I, I understand that the commercial impulse but he obviously had a tin ear when it came to the quality of this music because what's going on is uh you know, one of the most famous motown singles of all time and the minute gordy finally consented it to being released which was a uh, six months after it was recorded he recorded this thing in like june of 1970 gordy didn't let it get released until january of 1971 immediately shot to number yeah. one and, and uh, only and only because marvin gay went on strike he refused to do anything for Motown until they released What's Going On, and, and that's, that's pretty much the number one star, or 1A, or whatever, you know, whatever yeah, you call him, it. him and Stevie basically kind yeah. of like did it together. Stevie Wonder famously, you know, after um, uh, Where I'm Coming From, said like, yeah, listen, I'm not, I'm not doing this anymore. In fact, I'm going to leave, and I'm going to go sign with another label unless I get full creative freedom. And so with both Marvin Gaye and Stevie Wonder, and I'm sure they probably talked to one another about this, <laughs> coordinated it, because they're not stupid. Um, you know, basically won the right to record the music that they wanted to record. Now, what they didn't always win is the full support and backing of Motown to promote that music. But sometimes the music was just undeniable and it spoke for itself. And of course, that's the case with what's going on. Mother, mother, there's too many of you to cry. Brother, brother, brother. There's far too many of you dying You know we've got to find a way To bring some loving here today Father, Father We don't need to escalate You see, war is not the answer For only love Don't punish me with brutality Talk to me so you can see Now, the question I guess I have to ask about the album is Is this Marvin Gaye's most overrated record or not? Anyone have any opinions on that? Hmm that's that's hard because most overrated almost makes it sound like it's it's perhaps a kind of bad album um and it's 
it's not a bad album at all. It's a phenomenal album. And but people talk about it like it's the only ought to be album. celebrated. But I would I would agree with the with what I think you're implying there um, that it's not necessarily his best work. It's not the thing that I return to most frequently when I when I need a fix. Um, and in that respect, I'd say yeah, probably. Um, there there are again just remarkable songs on it, like what's going on and Mercy Mercy Me. These are fabulous songs, but um, I, I do think that there is other remarkable work in his catalog that gets overlooked because of the, the praise that's given to this particular project. I would agree. There's a lot on the album that is um, kind of, you know, breakthrough kind of stuff. The, the way that, that, uh, that Marvin Gaye was able to take creative control from the label, you know, after what's going on became such a big hit, they, uh, 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 Gordy essentially said, all right, you know, you've got it, but you have to get it done by this date. He wanted to release it quickly, but he would let Marvin Gaye essentially do what he wanted. And what he did was put together a true uh, album, right? I mean, a, a, a true series of songs that worked in, in, in context of a, of a theme and a song cycle and something Motown would never do because Motown was so single driven. All these songs, you know, blend into one another. They, they build on each other. Uh, there's the way that there, there's sort of new percussion being used here, uh, congas and, and bongos at the same time. Uh, still using that horns, but in a, you know using the saxophone in a different way on some of these uh, songs. The, the songs are connected. The issues are connected. You know he sings it a different way here too, and I think admitted to as much in a, in a later interview. There's a softer tone to his voice. It's it's a little more airy. Um, I think he said later that you know by this point, by what's going on, he had learned. Uh, really how to how to sing and how to use his his vocal instrument in one of the keys he said was he was singing too damn loud uh mm. earlier and, and he, he brought it back a couple of notches on on what's going on to deliver the message uh and deliver what he wanted people to hear about societal ills and war and poverty and drug addiction and like an inner city blues what was happening uh in, in the urban centers uh in the country uh, and taken from that angle, I, you know, from a from a uh, artistic perspective, yeah, I actually think there are albums coming up that are that are better. From what it meant as a as a release, what it meant to the industry, what it meant mm -hmm. to kind of that the soul music and, and the kind of groove, the grooves that he was writing for for this album, uh, I think it still is a monumental kind of release. I mean, the thing about this is that it was the first one. Stevie Wonder didn't come out with Talking Book until 1972. And that, of course, is like considered to be the, the, the beginning of Stevie's true album era. From, you know, from Talking Book onwards, well, then you get you know, like Inner Visions and all that. Um, and that's where he's like, a, he's not a singles artist anymore. Um, <clears throat> meanwhile, Marvin Gaye, you know, upended the game with what's going on. And I, there, there are... There are tracks on this that I think are kind. There are some dross on it. I think you know, if I'm gonna, if I'm gonna be you know brutally critical, I'll say, well, you know, I, I don't think Holy Holy really is that great. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's a little, it's not bad because, you, you, by the way, again, you know, you can criticize the house Motown style, the strings and, and mm. the band, all you want is being sort of like you know, it's a generic. It is kind of a chop amount sort of a thing, but. 
if you like that sound and I love that sound, then you're never going to get tired of hearing that sound. And that sound is all over what's going on. But you've got songs there like, again, Mercy, Mercy Me, The Ecology. And I think the joke goes, the, the apocryphal story at least goes that Barry Gordy didn't even know what the word ecology was <laughs> <laughs> when, when, when the, the song was submitted to him. He's like, what are you even talking about? But you know, the song, you know, for, you know, uh, you know uh, an R&B giant, a soul giant to be suddenly talking about environmental themes in 1971. I mean, that's yeah. pretty damn transgressive. And that's a hugely impressive thing to do. Whoa. And the other thing I'm going to point out is that in all the career of James Jamerson, who is you know arguably one of the you know five you know maybe even you know, top three greatest bass players of all time, he was the, the the engine of the sort of the Funk Brothers, the Motown mm-hmm. sound. Um, this is my favorite album of his. Just hmm. because you know what the funny thing is, is he's not playing these really ostentatious lines that are you know high up in the mix. But it's just like this is the first moment where you where you, sort of Motown house style softens into pure seventies hot hot buttered soul to uh, steal a phrase from Isaac Hayes. Um, it's just so perfect and it's so well kind of woven into the beat with the drums and also the string sections, which I don't know. I assume they were obviously overdubbed on separately, but they're really sympathetically done. People always like to criticize the strings on Marvin Gaye and Motown albums, but I find them to be, I mean, I don't know, I don't know if there's tasteful the world. I, I think it is tasteful. I love this stuff. I love flying high in the friendly sky which is a song about it you know it sounds like it's about airplanes no it's about heroin getting high yeah (laughs) it's about heroin man it's about you know again urban problems in urban living um what's going on what's happening brother these are great songs and you're right you know camille when you say like yes i i don't say anymore this is of course when i bought I bought the box set first, and then I started, what's the first album of Marvin Gaye's you're going to buy? Of course it's what's going on, because that's the one that everybody, every critic in the world directs you to start with. Uh, it's not my favorite of his 70s run at all. Uh, not anymore. I don't even know if I would, I, I think maybe it's like fourth, actually. Yeah. When yeah. I rate them, uh, but it's great. Yeah, uh, which guy kind of is just a tribute to to what kind of weird stuff Marvin Gaye was going to be getting up to during this decade. And the other thing I want to say, point out, um, is that and it can't be avoided is that you know, Marvin Gaye was a demon haunted man. Um, you know, this is a guy who had a lot of growing up had a very abusive relationship with his father, uh, and then of course had a very troubled relationship with. Barry Gordy with his wife, mm-hmm. Anna Gordy. Um, and then, of course, watched his you know very close friend, Tammy Terrell, die on him and was also paralytically 
afraid of performance of going out and touring and he you know it's funny there's a, there, there are quite a few marvin gay live albums none of them are terrible but i would say none of them are great because he just doesn't have the thrill for it you know he's not like stevie wonder who like during the 70s would like you know like you know play some of his new songs and then during intermission he'd go back and he'd go throw on his old 60s sunglasses and become a little stevie again with the harmonica and just, <laughs> you know like you make everybody freak out with joy when he starts doing like his old 60s hits like he, stevie wanted just loved to perform he loved to play marvin Gaye was much more introverted much shyer and i think that led to a lot of drug use you know this yeah. point where he he develops a real cocaine habit that, that ends up becoming you know, periodically very crippling for him during this period so you have a situation where he goes through these 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 phases of like a great efflorescence of music and of talent and then kind of like shuts up for years you know for, for like a year like he he, he kind of huddles down and god only knows what he's doing probably in a darkened room somewhere mm -hmm. and alone with his thoughts and it's a sad thought because like he he clearly was haunted by all of the stuff in his past and and, and maybe the things he was uh, apparently a clinical depressive and you hear this coming up not only on these songs the, the introversion of these songs just suggests that he's, he's he's on a completely different wavelength than the standard motown song but this is is going to become more and more and more apparent uh, with the next albums that he releases. And I think actually a great way of showing how obvious it is, is with Let's Get It On, which is about to come up. Uh, but before we get to that, I wanted to know if anybody had any thoughts. First of all, if, if anybody has any more thoughts on what's going on, it is one of the most famous albums of all time. Mm -hmm. Then go. But then the other thing is, is let's, let's talk a little bit about Trouble Man. Yeah, I'd, I'd love to talk about Trouble Man, but before we before we get to that, I I do think you know placing the project itself in its historical context is is incredibly valuable. And I mean, the 1960s, like Marvin and the rest of his label mates at Motown had watched uh, Medgar Evers and Malcolm X and Martin, Martin Luther King um, sort of rise and be assassinated. Uh, that is the world that they were recording a lot of that 1960s Motown stuff in. Um, and it, by the 1970s, it's actually kind of startling that they were making this music that was so pop, it was so optimistic and upbeat and about falling in love. And I mean, given given that Motown was also releasing um, vinyl of Martin Luther King speeches, uh, that it took it, it wasn't until what's going on that there was kind of a socially conscious and explicitly political project that came out of uh, Motown is actually pretty, pretty striking. Uh, and the fact that that really set the tone for other projects that would fall, follow later, um, I, I think is quite important and, and worthwhile. And again, to the extent we're differentiating between the, the aesthetic qualities of the music and the historical significance of the album, it, it certainly, it warrants a lot of the praise that's heaped on it for only the latter. I mean, by the way, I'll, I'll point out my last thought on what's going on is that I always love the fact that that title, that song, it's not a question. Yes. Mm. He's, not, he's not asking what's going on. That's right. He's, Marvin is telling you what's going on. Same thing with what's happening, brother. Exactly. This is the story, and I'm gonna I'm gonna tell it to you, and I need you to hear me. It's a very uh, bold way of playing that, and I really love that. Anyway, Scott. Yes, just very quickly, a couple of I I do I do really like the way the album is constructed, and most uh, gay albums in this decade are going to be the same way, where, where the tracks are so intricately intertwined. Uh, 
one of my favorite moments of the record is actually that the piano sweep from Save the Children that goes into the, that galloping pace of God is Love. Mm-hmm. I love that moment on the record. Um, Inner City Blues has, uh, as you mentioned, Jamerson's low-end bass groove just centers that song so perfectly. This dark blues funk vibe with these desperate scenes from, from again, urban, uh, urban America in 1971. Inflation, no change. You know, as, as much as almost anything on it, I love the care with which it was put together and, and, and produced and engineered. In a rush, no less, to meet Barry right, Gordy's, right. Uh, you know, tyrannical demands. And it still comes out sounding that good. <laughs> now, what do you guys think of Trouble Man? Trouble Man, of course, is, is a gay soundtrack. He, he wrote the whole thing himself uh, uh, to uh, a, a movie. A black exploitation movie that that's been forgotten because frankly it wasn't that good. Not very good. <laughs> no, I mean, it was. It's obviously you know, um, it's it's a repeat of Superfly, which of course Curtis Mayfield did the 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 soundtrack to Superfly, which is a black exploitation film that has hung on and it is pretty good. You know, and of course Freddie's Dead became one one of these huge singles. So the Superfly, it was a, it's a great album. It's a great pretty great movie uh this was marvin gaye's version of that I, I i think it's interesting it's it's a fun smooth album it's lightweight though it's almost like light relief in a mm-hmm. way you know uh there's only one song that he actually sings on which is the title track trouble man which was a single and actually i gotta say i really do love that song i mean it's it's this really great kind of it's new it's something completely different than anything that he had done before and also anything that's actually on what's going on it's this falsetto mm-hmm. narrative he never raises his voice and he's just you know, he's almost like, you know, Sprechstimming his way through it. I think it's a great piece. But uh, yeah, I mean, the album itself, I think, is, is sort of a footnote in his 70s career. I don't know if any of you disagree. Yeah, no, the album is is worth listening to. Um, I, I've certainly just put it on and will listen from beginning to end uh, every once in a while because uh, it's it's it kind of marinates and is, is just great. Um, but Trouble Man is like just a remarkable song. And I think, Scott, you mentioned it earlier when when Marvin discovered that he was singing too hard in those earlier albums. And on this particular song, I mean, he really is easing his way through the entire thing. The temp, the pace uh, will will change a little bit. I know some faces and others. It's just so, so fantastic. Um, And he is he's like uh, it's interesting how much emotional resonance the song has, despite the fact that he never, ever kind of gets up out of his seat at all. You can almost imagine him. And I, I remember reading about this in a couple of different biographies about him, him being in the studio like, recording, laying down in some instances. Uh, and you could almost you, you imagine can, it there. You can totally see that. That makes so much sense. Yeah, no, it, it seems so like almost calculatedly relaxed. Yeah. I know some places and I see some faces I got good connections I dig my dimensions when people say that's okay they don't bother me I'm ready to make it don't care what the weather don't care about no trouble got 
It's preternatural in that sense. Scott? I haven't spent an enormous amount of time with uh, the soundtrack, but it's an interesting listen, as, as uh, Camille said, if only because it really is a true indication of what Gay was doing right then and there. He wrote it, he arranged it, he conducted it. It's it's all him. Um, you know, one song, essentially with lyrics, you know, there are some throwaway lines and a few things like, don't mess with Mr. T. Um, mm-hmm. And, and um, you know, the arrangements are really good. And it's, it's almost... Um, uh, I want to say it's a transitionary thing, but, you know, he, he was having trouble, reportedly, figuring out exactly what the follow-up was going to be. He even canceled one. I mean, that was the next Correct. thing I was going to mention. You're the man, right? Yes, which was mm-hmm. just released relatively recently in a, uh, I don't know, not approved form, but, I mean, it's not, there never really was a total album, from best I can I can gather, that, that you know, Marvin Gaye had had kind of sequenced and had ready to go. There were songs that he was working on. There were a few other things that they were working on around the same time, but uh, but scrapped it after. Well, the, the one the title track was released as a single, though, right? You're the man. I think. Yeah, was you're the man was released. Yeah. And it didn't get again. Very political song. Very. It's Nixon, basically. He's talking right. to. And uh, you know, and it didn't really get the uh, the airplay that he was looking for. And so, I guess the story is that you know, in a huff, he decided to scratch it. But of course, I don't know if there's label pressures going <laughs> on there. There's probably also sort of like drug induced, um, you know, uh, doubts. I, I think that probably drug abuse here plays a role. Where you, the, the music on this, there are a couple of really great pieces of music. You're the man is a great single. The world is rated X is amazing. Yeah. And, Piece of clay yeah. is also yep, those amazing. First three. Yep. Yeah, and yeah, my, it, my favorite song off of that um, is uh, "Symphony," which Symphony. Oh, yeah. I actually heard several times on different uh, projects when they would give like the expanded release. "Symphony" would kind of get tacked on there. I think it right. was probably on the um, "Let's Get It On." It's the on "Let's there. Get It On" expanded right. one, and there's two. There's one is the demo where he's essentially saying what's going on over and over again, just again, improvising lyrics in the studio. You can actually, if you listen really close, you can hear him chewing gum um, <laughs> in, on the track before he starts singing. And he's chewing gum right before it. Um, but, but if you listen to the demo and then you listen to the sort of completed version of Symphony on that album, and then you listen to the most recently released version of Symphony, which was mastered by the same dude who does uh, the production for Amy Winehouse and Nas, um, he did a remarkable, remarkable mm-hmm. job just fi- filling out that song. Um, and I, it's, it, it's a new song. So I've been listening to it a bunch, um, at least newly released. Uh, and it's, it's, definitely among my favorites if, if we're asked to name top five that's that's one of them so i'll preview well, we, that now camille we might be asked <laughs> like violence music begins stars swell and i can tell that pretty soul 
Yeah, so like, yeah, you're the man. I mean, the thing about it is that yeah, you're the, there's half of a truly transcendent album there. Just like I think an album that's right. That, that's that half that half is better than what's going on. Uh, the rest of it, it wasn't done. It wasn't finished. And you know, you got to ask yourself, well, why? Why didn't he do it? And I think again, this is why I, I talked about this earlier. I think you really just can't understate the importance of you know how psychological issues and, and also drug addiction issues played a role in Marvin Gaye's creative decisions and sort of the, the funks that he found himself in. And he found a really interesting way of solving this problem, uh, which was uh, by recording the most dementedly carnal piece of music to ever be unleashed upon humanity in the form of uh, his other, I guess the other one, at least conventionally, is regarded as Marvin Gaye's most classic record, which is 1973's Let's Get It On, uh, an album which, uh, well, the title says it all. Uh, there's, a, there's a hit single on this record, and it's a great song. It's it's called You Sure Love to Ball. It's so um, good. It's so good. <laughs> uh, it doesn't take a roadmap to figure out what, what Marvin is talking about on this record. What do you guys think about this one? I, I absolutely love this project. And, and to the extent people are celebrating it, they're getting closer to uh, like just peak Marvin Gaye. Um, it's a it's an amazing album. Let's get it on. Keep getting it on. Also very good. The, this sort of continuation of the same song, which mm -hmm. it's interesting to the extent those are kind of one song extended across two tracks. It's nearly 10 minutes of music. Um, and that is a, a, a sharp departure from what he was doing in the 1960s right. when mm -hmm. Barry Gordy wanted songs done in like three odd minutes. Oh, um, two and a half an hour. <laughs> yeah. But you mentioned um, You Sure Love the Ball, which is another one of my very favorite Marvin Gaye tracks. And it's interesting because it has this woman moaning in the background. Oh, yeah. and, and we'll we'll come back to that uh, when we talk about a future album. So mm -hmm. I've always felt a little weird, like listening to that uh, in the car <laughs> with the volume all the way up. But it's a great song. What he's doing on it lyrically, the the vocal arrangements on that song, all of the, and I don't know that we've actually mentioned it explicitly, but beginning with uh, what's going on and extending all the way throughout the rest of his uh, ouvoir, um, he is is doing these harmonies with himself yes, and getting yes. just increasingly remarkable at his ability to arrange his own vocals in these dynamic ways. And he does so much of that on this album. Um, it, it just, it really is great. And again, it's one of those things where the, 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 the carnal content uh, can sometimes overshadow the amazing uh, artistic achievement that the albums uh, represent. Just 
I love that. I love the, the, the liner notes that Marvin wrote yes, yes. for this album, where he's like, you know, like this is music, you know, like sex is sex and love is love, you know, uh, you know this this album, you know, and something else. Like I hope you get lucky listening yeah, to this album. I wrote it. I wrote it down. <laughs> I can't imagine how many men and women got lucky listening to Let's Get Yes, I wrote it down. It actually, it's a, he wrote, "Have your sex. It can be exciting if you're lucky. Yes. I hope the music I present here makes you lucky." <laughs> I'm pretty sure that it did. Anyway, yeah. Scott, what do you think? Well, I, I, I mean, we should probably mention quickly here uh, a little bit more about Marvin Gaye's background in that he, he was raised, you know, clearly his father... Well, his father was, still, I think, right? Yeah, his yeah, father was... was a, a bizarre sect of evangelical Christian. They also went to church on Saturday, uh, like I did growing up, as my family was Seventh-day Adventist. There yeah. you go. I mean, yeah. so, like, yeah. And, Very strict. And it wasn't just that, but, like, his, his father was, was I, I believe, a preacher. And mm-hmm. yeah. uh, and then, you know, as far as I understand from reading about it, a pretty abusive guy. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, Marvin's story, he told it to David Ritz. Great biography, by the way, of Marvin Gaye, Divided exactly. Soul. It's really yes. it's worth picking up because um, it was it was going to be an as told to autobiography until Marvin Gaye died, uh, and then David Ritz said, "Well, I know I've been working with him for so long. I'll just write it as a biography." So you get him his unfiltered voice. Uh, he's really eloquent talking about stuff like this. He said basically his father would beat him until there wasn't an inch of his body left unbruised when he was a kid, and it was only his mom, you know, his mm-hmm. mom's love for him and his mom's love of a singing voice that kind of kept him going as a kid really fraught relationship which of course is going to come back in a in a very bad way near at the end of his life but uh the, the whole kind of obsession with sex seems very clearly related yes. to that strict christian upbringing that ends up having this outpouring right so let's get it on and, and, and marvin figuring things out for himself and that's you know let's get it on is a, a song that uh, virtually everyone knows of course and it's you know this seductive anthem but you know when I, when i hear it and, and hear the lyrics you know marvin gay is trying to convince himself as much as he is his partner uh you know um you know uh, uh, you don't have to worry that it's wrong you know lines like mm-hmm. that um i love the you know the immediacy of the lyric and the song it's the first song on the album and it drops you in in the middle of something that's already happening both musically and lyrically <laughs> right i mean and it gets right to the chorus it's three three lines maybe and then right to the chorus um, the drums on Let's Get It On are so fantastic that the fills are, are, are immaculate. The cymbal crashes are right in your in your head, you know, if you're listening with headphones on. It's just a really great song. And again, I think it's as much Marvin Gaye talking to himself as he is talking to a, a potential romantic partner about plans for, you know, later that night.
The entire album is a mood piece, and it's mm-hmm. almost you feel strange to sort of dissect it song by song. I mean, they hit the, the the big singles, of course, were "Let's Get It On," "Come Get to This," which is awesome. Yes, and and then you sure love the ball. But I'll tell you, if I'm just going to single this one song out, and I'll let you guys have your say. One I really love is "If I Should Die Tonight," mm-hmm. which has just a great line. First of all, it's just the most beautiful falsetto vocal. God, nobody ever sang falsetto soul vocals better than Marvin Gaye. Nobody, not even Al Green, who was like, you know, the guy here I but maybe runs him close. But there's yeah. that line where um, you know, if I should die tonight, then I want you to know that I won't die blue because I've known you. And uh, boy, you know what? Any woman would melt at hearing. <laughs> it's just so perfect. <laughs> it's so seductive. Oh! That's the one he said he couldn't he couldn't sing right. It was it was written by somebody else, and he he said he couldn't sing it initially because he did he didn't like singing lyrics that he had no experience with. He didn't care if he wrote it or someone else wrote it, but he had to have that experience to properly emote, and he couldn't do it until he had that experience. Right, right. So, um, does anybody else have any thoughts on the most erotic album ever recorded? Yeah, no, I, I, I just say again that it's it's a really great album, and there are plenty of tracks here that we haven't mentioned that are are worth um, noting. I think "Distant Lover" is on this project as well, if I'm yeah. not mistaken. Yep. Yeah. Um, and the the last track on the yes. album, on the original album, is "Just to Keep You Satisfied," which yes. is an interesting sort of move away from the sensual seduction and thinking explicitly about how things sort of went wrong, how they were great, how I tried really hard and they went wrong. Um, and this is perhaps the the sort of initial preview. It's the prequel to uh, Hear My Dear. Leave you By the way, and this is a, this is a, a thing I point out on, on 
so many shows. One of the great things about Let's Get It On, and what's going on for that matter, mm. Let's Get It On, 31 minutes long. Yeah. You got eight <laughs> songs, it says everything it wants to say, and then it leaves. It's not like, you know, sometimes you need to have a sprawling double album statement, which we'll get to with Here My Dear. But, uh, you know, this thing is just, you know, so quick. It never ever outstays its welcome uh, and the funny thing about that is that uh you know after having this, this sort of almost perfectly unified carnally lustful unified statement from marvin gay he did a duets album with diana ross which isn't very good and i don't no. really think, i don't think we should really talk about it that much but then like three years went by yes. Three whole years of silence before he released his next album. And this is one that's controversial. I know that both of you, Camille, I know you love this album. Scott, you said you like this album. Mm -hmm. I'm not as much a fan of this album. This is I Want You. This is the follow-up to Let's Get It On. Um, this is an album where I guess it's 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 by the way a big hipster favorite so i you two are not alone a lot of people, <laughs> it, it, it was it was underrated at its time it was very poorly reviewed at its time and now everybody thinks it's awesome i don't think it's bad by any means uh but i just think of myself well there's not much music there there's like you know there's instrumental versions of two or three songs there's a reprise version of another song um and and, and the other problem is that it's mostly the musical work of his producer, Leon Ware. Leon Ware, yeah. It's good, by the way. I mean, this is not, this is great music. And, and there's a song that I know Scott loves that I also love as well. I won't steal it from him. Um, but I think this is like in that 70s continuum. This for me is like the dip, the, the, the one that's lesser than the rest. So I really want to hear you guys make your case for it. Yeah, I, I absolutely love this album. This is probably my favorite Marvin Gaye album. And it's my favorite Marvin Gaye album, despite the fact that nearly every track has a woman moaning on it. Yes, everyone. Um, every, <laughs> all of them. It is just, at times, it's overwhelming. It's a joke. It, I, mean, it yeah. is, I literally, in my, like my, notes, my, my show notes, I, I just literally started writing. It's like, boy, you know, he's really gotten a, he's gotten a, a trope now, a sexy track with women's moans in the background. <laughs> yeah. It's a stock move. There's like three songs that have that <laughs> but but i i mean i really do think that again here like perhaps more than anything else um in the catalog just the vocal arrangements are what really make this album work for me and i will admit to like sitting in a dark room with my headphones on listening to uh, marvin gay albums as i've been doing in preparation for this conversation actually um and and just listening just trying to pull out the distinct um layers of vocal arrangement that he's put into these songs and honestly that's that's what made me fall in love with this project it, it's a project that as i understand it leon ware essentially brought to marvin almost fully formed I mean, yeah some of these songs had existed for some time i guess um i want to be where you are like michael jackson has a version of that that mm -hmm. he did for his first solo project and Leon would eventually release uh, a version of that song as well. And Marvin's version of it is something else altogether. In fact, the, the extended um, album has uh, two or three different versions of the song on it. Um, and one of which is called After the Dance. So it's just different lyrics that he's improvising. Um, but yeah, I, I just think that it's what makes the 
this album so rich um, is just the the vocal arrangements. Marvin really like allowing his his artistic genius to to fully flower in a in a project that someone else had sort of written and arranged. Like Leon had hadn't just written these songs; he'd arranged a lot of this and already sort of done the scoring. Um, and Marvin came in and just kind of gave it his special something that no one else really could. It's probably my favorite Marvin Gaye album as well. Um, I, I, I think it's really phenomenal. For the third time in a row, well, you know, from uh, what's going on through um, Let's Get It On and Now I Want You, th- those three really understands the power of the album and in sequencing and in the way that things play. Uh, this, though it is, as Jeff mentioned, a, a lot of Leon Ware, I mean, mostly Leon Ware with the, the songwriting. Marvin Gaye just consumes it and, and mm-hmm. makes it his own. Um, you know, Janice Hunter, who would soon be his second wife, was was uh, was reportedly in the studio while he's recording it, and and so this she's is, what sixteen years old at that 16 time. Or seventeen or seventeen. Yeah. Seventeen. So it, it's only slightly less scandalous. <laughs> but you know, seventeen and pregnant, maybe. Yeah. Uh, that opening track, "I Want You," which plays for more than a minute before it really gets to its lyrics uh, just this insistent rhythm and back it's trance music yeah it's mm. so good and then the song that jeff mentioned earlier that everyone should hear it's on my it's on my list of five to uh, spoiler at the end is is come live with me angel uh, oh yeah this is yeah. such an amazing song it features the moaning um <laughs> the last the last two and a half minutes or so are, are lyric free and yet i i think it might be like the sexiest sultriest part of his entire catalog but listen he's, Scott, he's saying out. he's saying some pretty uh some pretty risque things in those last couple of moments as well yeah, yes by the way i'm going to tell you what the secret weapon on come live with me angel is it isn't the moaning it isn't the secret sexy lyrics it's the funky <laughs> that funky funky clavinet in the mm-hmm. left channel. all right because it works with the, the chuck rainy bass line is playing on the other side and it's just like it's these little stabs on the clavinet and then the other thing about it is that that, that sax playing yes it's like it, it, it's so it's actually strangely dry it's not like smooth sex it's, it's sort of like it's in your face. It's the opposite of a cheesy sax. You only know, think of like mm-hmm. '80s sax, like you know, "Modern Love" by David Bowie, or like, you know, like, <laughs> you know, like, like you know, so '80s, you know, your '70s, late '70s chic productions. This is actually kind of like it stabs at you, um, but yeah, it's just a groove. It's not a song, but uh, boy, uh, in terms of grooves, wow, it's good. I want you the title track is that song's all about the guitar 
Mm-hmm. That, that stinging soul funk guitar, as I said, it's like trance music. And then the thing about it, about the mixing of that is to me so great because, like you know, how, how many other mixing decisions could have been made there? You have the strings and the horns in the background, but in in this mix, they're way back, and then the guitar is up over everything instead of like what you would normally have. You know, you normally have like you'd be overwhelmed by the orchestral stuff. Now. No, Marvin Gaye is, is, is going for something very different with that. And those are the two great moments on that record, in my opinion. Yeah, and, and you know, with Come, Come Live With Me, Angel, you know, Let's Get It On is the, you know, Let's Get It On album, but let me explore all your treasures. I'll turn you on to all those freakish pleasures, just you and me locked up for days. <laughs> I mean, that's all over this uh, this record. Uh, all the Way Around is a, is a great song. I, I, there's like a triple lead vocal in parts there where there's a left, right, and a setter, Marvin Gaye, all coming through. Uh, yeah. It's got this wonderful, funky, rolling bass line. Uh, and then the, the closer, which I think was one of the singles, <laughs> After the Dance, has mm-hmm. one of the most melodic, catchy, smooth choruses, and certainly the you know the Motown '60s era, and as uh, as uh, Camille mentioned earlier, you know Marvin's getting even more sophisticated with the way he's tracking himself. Listen to the multi-track work and the way his voice plays on "After the Dance," uh, the lyric version. It is incredible. <laughs> So again, you know, this is this is someone else's words, but it's Marvin's Marvin Gaye's emotion. He sells it to the hilt. Yeah, I think you got to go back and listen to this one again, Jeff, because I'm I'm looking I'm at this track list and I'm I'm trying to imagine <laughs> like any one song that I would be like, oh, you know, if he didn't include that, I'd be okay. I'd be fine with that. But no, all of it. I want all of this. It's all phenomenal. I'm, I feel I'm like doing my best to repress myself from singing right now <laughs> hey, you know what go for it yeah. but i feel like like i don't need the instrumental version of after the dance and, <laughs> you know and, and okay yeah, i'll tell you if you're talking about like the, the closest the marvin gay ever in his entire career came to descending into self-parody then i'm gonna tell you, <laughs> i'm gonna tell you it's feel all my love inside <laughs> which almost feels like it would be a south park kind of like a parody of like a steamy 70s r&b <laughs> soul love song feel all my love inside and as the Woman is moaning in the background. Yeah, yes. like, I know, oh. I know. I, I, I love it's it despite a, that. It's a little over the top. That's almost. I wish, I mean, I wish was, there was a way to get like the original masters and like pull <laughs> the pull the moaning out and just re-release this album. The thing um, is, it's still I a fun can. song. I mean, this, <laughs> here's the thing: none of these songs are bad. I don't. There's there's no genuinely offensive like you know gay track from from the seventies album era. Not one. There's just stuff that isn't very distinguished, and that which. Yeah, or makes me laugh because I'm like, yeah. oh, all right. It's like you know, this is let's get it on, and I'm like, well, how can we make this just be even more over the top? Well, 
you're gonna feel all my love inside you know spurting you know because <laughs> marvin is, is full of is engorged with love boy my lord you know, you know <laughs> I'd like to hear like a tenacious D cover of uh, Feel All My Love Tonight. That, that's Thank perfect. You. Thank you. That was exactly what I was looking for. It does sound like a tenacious D. <laughs> Thank you. And th- there are really so many of those, like those weird lyrics that you, did he just say, did did he just? Yeah, he yeah. did. Yeah. yeah. He just said that, you know? Okay. So from the heights of erotic fantasy to uh, the lows of bitter divorce i posed this question earlier today on twitter i asked people okay uh, are there are there any better divorce albums this is a subgenre <laughs> then here my dear his his follow up to i want you this is 1978 the story behind this i'll do i'll i'll cover it because it's just amazing so like he he finally got his divorce from anna gordy barry gordy's sister um, you know, he had been, of course, you know, having an affair with 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 Janice for quite some time. Uh, the divorce was incredibly bitter, uh, incredibly brutal, and, and I think the uh, the the terms of the divorce were that he was going to have to give away half of his royalties on whatever album he next recorded. Mm-hmm. Anna Gordy. So uh, his first instinct was to uh, you do what any any man might do, which is to say, like you know, screw it, I'm just <laughs> going and re- record, do what Van Morrison did when he had that horrible contract with Bang Records, record a bunch of songs about farts, and you know, just like force them to release it. And you know, there's you're going to make no money here. Here, here's your one half of one penny. Suck it up. Uh, but he couldn't bring himself to do it. And I'll never, never, never flag in my respect for Marvin Gaye for this. He came in with anger thinking that he was going to record a piece of crap and then he sat down and he started writing and he said to himself i can't do it i've just got to write about what i feel and so what he wrote was not a commercial piece at all so maybe he won in the end right because there probably weren't too many that's right there. <laughs> yeah but the, the reviewers yeah, were not kind the reviewers were not kind but the reviewers were wrong i i, I agree said, this is his masterpiece this <laughs> masterpiece. it is his double album masterpiece every great artist has to have a double album this is his exile on main street this is his white album this is his songs in the key of life here in my dear is though uniquely bitter in the annals of double albums as a record devoted entirely to divorce and to the pain of breaking up i was, I was saying like what well, you know this, this it's blood on the tracks by bob dylan and it's shoot out the lights by richard and linda thompson right up there with like the, the angriest albums about the dissolution of love and the dissolution of a marriage and the funny thing about it is I love this album despite the fact that there isn't a, a hook on the single mm-hmm. <laughs> on any single song <laughs> 75 minutes and there isn't like one big massive pop hook but my god I would listen to it every day for the rest of my life and the lyrics on this he wrote it, by the way this is the other thing is this isn't a song, the album where like other people wrote the music for him and he just kind of came over and applied a gloss he wrote almost everything on this record music 
lyrics. This came straight from his heart. This is straight out of the mind of Marvin Gaye. And the fact of that alone makes it just utterly compelling as a document. This is it. This is the one. And it's the one that, that you know, people don't talk about nearly as much as they should. Yeah, that, there's something. It's it's incredibly intimate, way more intimate than a lot of the scintillating material that he covers in other places. Obviously, he's not telling Anna's side of the story here at all. <laughs> this is all. And she was a bit upset Marvin's about that. This, this is straight up one side. Yeah. I mean, I was. I already. I've written down like a whole sheaf of lyrics that I want. To <laughs> yeah. Okay. My, my favorite. What I always think about when I think about this album is what I can't understand is if you love me, how could you turn me into the police? <laughs> Didn't I, didn't I love you good and try to take care of you the best I could? Um, you know, you're not mentioning the fact that you actually have two children with your mistress who you've been living with for years. I know. I know. Um, that's fine. Um, if, if you really loved me with all of your heart, you would never take a million dollars to part. I really tried. Say you love with all your heart. It's going to be if recording our favorite lyrics, mine totally come from Is That Enough? Yeah, which is you know just another just long, slow jam, but it is so suffused. That's the one where I mean, that's literally the why do I have to pay attorney fees? Yes, (laughs) (laughs) I'm gonna give you that full lyric. That full lyric is genius. What am I supposed to do? The judge tell me she got to live the way she accustomed to. Can somebody please, can somebody tell me please why I have to pay attorney fees? Oh my gosh. Oh, it's, it's so, so good. It's so unmediated. It's so unmediated. <laughs> there's, 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 there's nothing sanding away like the brutal. And the fact that, you know, the fact that it is, the fact that it is kind of frankly selfish and, yes. and one sided makes it that much more powerful. Mm-hmm. You know, it, we can sit here and say, well, you know, yeah, we should tell Anna's side of the story. But, we know Anna's side of the story and we can all understand that. But the thing about it is like you want an emotional document of where a man is at a moment in his life. And there's nothing just more painfully clear than here, my dear. You got a flag for style and a style in all What could I do? The judge said she got to keep on living the way she custom to.
I joked the other day about how I was like, you know, there's an album that I didn't understand when I was 17, and I understand when I'm 38, which is Let's Get It On. Mm-hmm. And then somebody came back at me and said, no, 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 no. The album that you don't understand when you're 17, but you understand when you're 38 is Here, My Dear. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, God help you if you understand what this album is about when you're 17 years old. <laughs> you, should not have, you should not have seen that much or lived that long to understand that. I, I, I like it an awful lot. It's It's... You know, when you know the whole story, it, it, it everything fits into place. Um, mm. I don't like it quite as much as um, as uh, I want you. Um, I, I, you know, it's a little look. It's a double album. All double albums generally can you can say it gets a little long. Yes, but it's also you know Marvin Gaye uh, clearly living his divorce and his his marital split on record. So how do you criticize him for being a bit long in places? I think. Um, there are a couple of real highlights you guys mentioned is that enough which is which is just a great song i like that paired with i think everybody needs love is the very next track i like those uh back to back uh sparrow is one that uh has this great rhythm and momentum to it and this kind of odd jazzy saxophone that juts in all over the place i really mm-hmm. like the arrangement on sparrow uh late on the album uh you can leave but it's going to cost you which is kind of a, a partner to is that enough i think uh, uh, that young girl's going to cost you if you want happiness you got to pay uh marvin Gaye's be best song on, best song on the album yeah maybe the best songs of his career i think it's i think it's the best song on the album too um and then you know the, the the story about they were brought i think to her sister's house to talk about reconciling and they fought so vociferously that they had to they had to make love afterwards after all he says you were my wife um <laughs> just some amazing stuff through this um i met a little girl um which i think is tr- second track is it harkens it's right back it's right after here my dear which yeah. is like amazing the contrast right like, because here my dear is like here's the album i've recorded to you about our divorce right and then <laughs> boom i met a little girl yeah, beginning it, to end. This very yeah, 50s so doo-wop uh, thing with kind of the script flip being that he, he's he's singing it to the, that kind of 50s rhythm, but from the perspective of, of where he is today, yeah. a, you know, a 38-year-old man, whatever he was at the time. Again, the vocal stacking and layering and, and the way that pace is just laid back and song kind of unfurls. Uh, I Met a Little Girl is one of the highlights of the record too and i'll just mention very quickly anger too anger is is not quite what it says just mean it, what it's more about is kind of pushing away from the rage and not giving into the temptation to lose control mm-hmm. uh of your anger over this really interesting track that kind of builds and builds and builds on top of itself uh, I feel like it, it's it almost a, about it, it could it could just as easily be addressed to his father as it was true yeah to his wife yeah i mean that's such a great song yeah i'm sorry to interrupt no that, that's where i was wrapping up and and you know you had mentioned the you know divorce albums the one album that i just thought of as i listened again to hear my dear is matthew sweet's uh, girlfriend which I, I loved so much i still do but i i just love that one uh, as i was going through my my teen years and, and early 20s it's it's a great you know it's more it's, it's certainly not a divorce it's, it's a breakup album but that cycle from like beginning to end and, and a one-sided story reminded me a bit of that album too that that live album that marvin recorded it was like live in london was that before here my dear is that after let's get it on do you, do you guys know it's right afterwards okay 
Yeah, because that's another another great project, which we were kind of going in chronological order, and right, I just exactly. realizing no, no, that we kind of bypassed yeah. that one. No, we didn't. We didn't. We're getting to that in a second, but, okay. but I mean, unless I got it wrong, jeez, I hope I didn't. No, uh, it's okay. You're probably right. <laughs> no, you know what? I think I did get it wrong. Freak. Um. Uh, yeah, actually, the well, we'll talk about we'll talk about gotta give it up in a second. But I just want to get your thoughts on here, my dear. First, and then yeah, I will go. Yeah. I will go back, and we will retcon this this podcast, and we'll talk about that. <laughs> No, I mean, this is, I, I, I think I've kind of said my piece uh, already. Um, I, I could spend a little bit of time talking about any one of these songs. Um, it's, it's funny, Scott, you mentioned the sort of doo-wop style on I Met a Little Girl. Um, and it's only listening to it again recently that I realized, oh, wait, like he, he changed styles. Like that's the style that yes. he would have been singing at that period of time yeah. when he's telling the story. And throughout the song, he's kind of shouting out the year um, when th- certain things were taking place and unfolding. And again, it's the layering of the vocals there um, where he's sort of holding down the, the the tenor and the alto and the soprano is just so good. Ooh, I met a little girl Oh, was fine was fine Pretty little thing Just about blue reasons that I accidentally skipped the Marvin Gaye live album <laughs> is because <clears throat> I was thinking in terms of big hits. And the thing is that Marvin during this period was not having any big hits. You know, he'd gone about two years without a big hit, which of course in, in, in the seventies, you know, not in this, this modern era where, where Radiohead can release an album once every presidential administration and still be the talk of the town. Uh, it was like death. Um, so what happened? Marvin Gaye recorded a live album. The live album is okay. I like it. I don't love it. It's a good record. Um, but what's most significant about it is that there was a double album and the fourth side of it, uh, you know, side four of the double LP, uh, was just an 11 minute long, uh, new disco funk track called got to give it up. Mm-hmm. And uh, wow, this is something that you know might have been noteworthy at the time because "Got to Give It Up" was a big hit for Marvin Gaye. It was, it was his last big hit before "Midnight Love," in fact. Um, but of course, it's it's become newly controversial because of "Blurred Lines," which uh, you know the the Robin Thicke and Pharrell song, which was accused of uh, plagiarizing it, and in fact they won a suit about that which i have opinions on legal opinions which are stupid <laughs> um, i think it was a terrible verdict um, agreed uh yeah it was a terrible verdict but uh god what, what do you guys think i gotta give it up i mean i'll tell you this i think it's 
okay. Here's here's. I, I know Camille, you love this song, and I do. it's a good it's a good song. I'm gonna say something that sounds so horribly blasphemous. <laughs> I think Robin Thicke and Pharrell wrote a better song. <laughs> well, well, yes, they did Melodic, write a better melo- song melodically at least. Yeah. You know, okay, yeah, thematically, you know, you talk about like you know, like taking advantage of women. That's awful. But I'm just telling you, in terms of melody, in terms of the hooks. Uh, the update of the vibe, the feel of Gotta Give It Up is better. And the irony, by the way, of this is that that, that Gate didn't really, this song was assembled, I right. think, in the studio by his engineer after the That's fact. Right. Yeah. It wasn't really like something that he came up with on his own. He was never a big fan of disco. Gay really hated that, which is funny because, you, know, you know, so much of the Motown string-based sound, especially in the early 70s, kind of prefigured what disco would become. But Gay always thought of himself as an R&B and as a soul man and so i think he never got on board with the donna summer disco move that a lot of other artists were making at that time michael jackson of course as well off the wall Mm -hmm. um and uh you know this is was his his last big single until the end of his career um and of course everyone loves it camille tell us about this well well i think the the story that david ritz tells in uh divided soul about the the genesis of this song how it came to be the fact that they were just kind of picking up all of the the background sound of folks hanging out in the studio with him that that's authentic that he's like talking to folks who poke their head into the room while he's recording um that that there's something about the organicness of that song it it reminds me of the sculptor who looks at a block of stone and something emerges from it and the fact that this is perhaps not his greatest song, um, but it's true. Like Pharrell and, and Robin Thicke, they wrote a better song, but that's just because in this particular case, to the extent you can call what Marvin did here, writing, I mean, that's very generous. <laughs> you know, this is this is Marvin, you know, improvising and vamping and 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 just creating something uh, really pretty miraculous um, in a genre that he was not even particularly interested in. Uh, you might didn't want to do a disco track, uh, but to the extent he does it, he really puts his own stamp on it and creates something that is pretty timeless and enduring in a, in a way that I think a lot of music from that particular epoch is not. Like it. Uh, um, the 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 one the one line you draw directly from it, I think, is is where Michael Jackson would go next because you know, he was trying to get kind of free of the, of the, of the Jacksons and the Jackson Five, and, and then you mm-hmm. go to Off the Wall, and clearly, like, Don't Stop Till You Get Enough is not a carbon copy. Maybe maybe they should have sued about Don't Stop Till You Get Enough. I think that's got a, just an <laughs> extremely similar feel to it uh, than uh, uh, to, to to got to give it up. So there's some people that I think were directly influenced by certainly the feel and, and then later on Robin Thicke and, and others too. 
Yeah, I mean, th- my favorite uh, Cormac McCarthy quote is uh, something he said, I believe, in that interview he gave to Oprah. And perhaps he said it in other places as well, but he doesn't get interviewed a bunch. Is he said something like, books are made of books. And, you know, with, with Marvin, with Marvin, you certainly get the sense that songs are made of songs. Mm-hmm. There are, there are, and this is the case with, with all these Motown art, artists. You have this kind of ironing, sharpeneth iron uh, circumstance with all these legendary people like in this same uh, orbit of one another, perfecting each other and getting better and better and in competition with one another all throughout their careers and borrowing riffs from one another. Um, I, I'm forgetting what song it is where Marvin like sort of shouts out Stevie Wonder and says, I hope you don't mind that I borrowed your style uh, on this particular song. Um, so, you know, th- for a song like Got to Give It Up to inspire other great music later, I mean, that's the way this is supposed to work, <laughs> yeah, um, which is why it's just so scandalous and, and awful to me um, for someone to be inspired by a song. Uh, to make something new and remarkable on it in its own that, quite frankly, like turns younger new generations back towards some of that original material um, and then to be punished for it right. by the courts is just, uh, yeah, it puts a, a bad taste in my mouth. Yeah, that's precisely why I found that jury verdict to be, uh, and, and of course the, it was confirmed on appeal to be so appalling. In, in, in musical copyright law, it's traditionally at least been understood that the only things that can be plagiarized are melody and you know lyrics. So if you take someone's words and reuse them, then yeah, you've stolen from them. If you take someone's melody, you've stolen from them. But a feel... You know, a sound, a percussive feel mm-hmm. that, that has never been something that's been able to be protected before. And I almost feel like that the reason the jury arrived at this decision, which is to me completely benighted, and if pursued throughout other music, would oh, result goodness. in Chuck Berry, for example, being the state of Chuck Berry being the richest <laughs> human being. Um, it's basically because, you know, to, to paraphrase the video, they just thought that Robin Thicke was a big dick as opposed to having one. And <laughs> and, and, and they just, it's like, yeah, Marvin Gaye sympathetic, you know, Robin Thicke jerk Canadian. And uh, it makes no sense on any legal or logical level. And I don't think that as a precedent, it will be applied. If it were, it would wreak havoc upon the industry. Um, yeah, well, I mean, that's really all there is to say about that. So I guess that the last two things to talk about here are his, first of all, his final album for Motown, and then mm. his, his big comeback album for Columbia. This final album for Motown was something called In Our Lifetime, fascinating cover, where Devil Marvin is facing off against Angel Marvin. Um, and you get a lot of the same smooth grooves and fascinating sounds that you heard on Here, My Dear, and a lot of the same anger. But uh, I guess I, there's, there's, to me, this album is an album that seems to have clearly been written in the, in, in the fog of, of real drug addiction. It's oh, one, absolutely, yes. Yeah, it, it, the reason I, I guess I like it less than the rest of them is that I, I, I feel like I hear the fog and I hear the haze and I hear the lack of focus. But I wanted to know what you guys thought about it. Well, the, just, only, the only track that really stands out to me on that album is Funk Me. Thank you. 
Beyond that, I mean, it's it has always felt like an incomplete project to me. Uh, and I know Far Cry is the is the track on the album that Marvin yes. was particularly incensed that Marvin that Motown managed to get the masters and release this album with without his approval. Um, and oh, yeah, he was oh, always yeah, but- upset that Far Cry was incomplete; had not been. For those who don't know, like what happened is that he, uh, Mar- Marvin Gaye submitted the, uh, the recordings to Motown, and then without his knowledge, they went off and they dubbed strings and, you know, the standard Motown sound, you know, whatever that sound is, you know, 1979. They dubbed stuff onto it without his approval afterwards. And, yeah, yeah, th- that's a good example of it. By this point, drugs are a huge problem uh, for Marvin. They had been for a while. This was like out of control. He had a project, I'll just mentioned real quickly, called Love Man. If you see, ever see the, the cover of, and actually the mm. back cover of Love Man, it's, yeah, it's with, with, with the, the, the Lame disc, yeah. the gold Lame disco suit. It's, yeah. pre- it's pretty awesome. Uh, but it, it was dropped uh, after one song called Ego Tripping Out was released as a single, and that was mm. tacked on to In Our Lifetime on the, on the CD reissues. Ego Tripping Out, I actually like quite a bit um, from the Love Man sessions. It's kind of this self-mocking the image and lifestyle that he had uh, become accustomed to in the 70s. It's this really neat funk dance groove. And I mean, this, it uh, opens with him saying like, yeah, man, why do you need a limousine to go everywhere yeah. you go, man? Like, <laughs> yeah, but I'm such a superstar, you know? And this harsh synth figure that sort of repeats itself. I, I do like that a lot. I'm better than the rest. Check out the way I dress. And got a lot of money to spend. Best club in town is where I get down. You're lucky if I choose you, my friend. Hey, walk the greatest walk. I got to be the talk. I got the greatest show in town. Ooh, rock with the other man, then roll over to me so I can thrill your soul, baby. I don't think there's a lot. Actually, I, I don't like Funk Me that much. Uh, Far Cry is not good. I don't think In Our Lifetime is real great. Um, Life is for Learning is a, is a pretty good groove to it. Um, and Heavy Love Affair, I thought the, there's a real prominent bass line in there that, that works pretty well. But and that's actually a Heavy Love Affair, I think, is an old Love Man track, too. So, you know, recycling some ideas and bringing them uh, to the forefront in, in our lifetime. Not, I mean, from all sides, from sales, from critical, from, you know, relationship-wise, the way Motown, you know, produced his tracks, the way he did not want them to. It was a pretty, uh, um, uh, pretty bad way to end the Motown relationship. 
pretty clear end of the line. I agree. Now, you know, between between here and what happens with Midnight Love, I just want to point out that you know there are maybe two or three truly great renditions of the Star Spangled Banner ever been done. Mm. Uh, uh, you know, I'd say Whitney Houston. That's my number one. Uh, and uh, you know, what can I say? I'm, I'm, a, I'm a sucker for tradition. <laughs> if, you're, if you're gonna go non-traditional, uh, nothing beats Marvin Gaye with a beatbox singing at the NBA All-Star Game in mm-hmm. 1982 or something like that. I think that. that's right, yeah. Oh, my living God. That is amazing <laughs> version that he did there. I just wanted to shout out to it right here because, like, you know, Marvin, it, it, it goes back to what I was talking about, his version of yesterday, where you, you take the uh, the basic structure of a song, the chords and all that, and you completely rewrite it. And, you know, he's, he's a slave at that point to the rhythm because, you know, it's, mm-hmm. it's just, it's 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 a beatbox, so he can't deviate from it. But he finds a way to rework the meter of that to get all the melody in and all the words, and it ends up being one of the longest versions of the story, <laughs> <laughs> like three and a half minutes or something like that. But oh god, it's so good! It's just it's, it, it really is masterful, and it's one of those things where he's not going for the big notes that everyone goes for in the same oh. places at all. Yeah, um, it, I'm, I'm I'm hearing it in my head now, um, but it's like. Where towards the end, where he said, Oh, say, does that star spangled banner yet wave? It's on banner that he really, like, right. I, I'm, I was gonna do it, I'm not gonna do it. I'm gonna do it. You can play it. <laughs> I won't do it. I won't do it. It's no. <laughs> nope. Um, it's so masterful, and he, he really does when he's ending the song, just end it gently again. It's just this tactical assassination of this song where he's completely owning it and doing it in his own way in a way that I don't know that anyone would even even thought to have approached the song in this way And the aviator sunglasses. Yeah, that's also super cool. But like the approach is just so left field. Like, yeah. oh man, I'm so impressed by it. But of course, that brings us to our last album. And of course, we have to just say this now: this, the, the tragedy of Marvin Gaye is that we only talk about him up to 1982 because he was murdered by his father in 1984. Uh, you know, his brother, Frankie, uh, who was there when it happened, came in to cradle him when he said, and he said, like, you know, Frankie characterizes it almost as like, you, you, what's the phrase that you have? Suicide by cop. Mm-hmm. When you, you run into, like, you know, the police, you know they're going to shoot you. Right. But you do it anyways because you, you just, you're so full of the pain that you end it. Um, this is basically suicide by father. He knew that he, he, he got into a big fight with a physical fight. He kicked him. He attacked him. And he knew that he was going to come back and shoot him. And he still did it anyway. 
you know, the 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 pathology, the sadness, the anger, the the the, the family, the family issues that that drove him to do those things. You know, that's the kind of stuff that we could unpack for forever, and and other people have done a better job of unpacking before. Uh, so it's just this tragedy that his his career was extinguished before he could kind of get a hold of those demons that drove him to such greatness and also to such sadness. But it's important to point out that before he did this, he experienced his greatest commercial revival ever. Mm. In fact, his greatest commercial success with his final album, Midnight Love. He, he left Motown. He went to Columbia Records. He recorded Midnight Love. And uh, this is where sexual healing comes from. This was Marvin in the 80s, as Camille was talking about right at the beginning of the show, that I first heard him as, that he first heard him as. Uh, this is his last album. What do you guys think of Marvin in the 80s and what, what might have been? Well, I mean, I think just the fact that he has this triumphant return after the the sort of decline in the, at the end of the 1970s. It's the sort of thing that one one could have imagined never having happened at all. Right. Um, that he came out of the stupor that he was in when he was hiding out in Europe and, and just doing a ton of drugs. Um, and the bookend is him reconnecting with Harvey Fuqua, who mm-hmm. he and Harvey was instrumental in helping Marvin sort of just get established in the very beginning in the early, early days pre-Motown with, uh, I guess it was the, the Moonglows was the name of the doo-wop group that Harvey had constituted that he actually added Marvin to later. Um, and Harvey came to this Marvin Gaye, who is, you know, broken man, who is not confident in his power and his ability to really know whether or not he can make relevant music. Um, and he trusts Harvey enough to produce him and to help him develop an album that could resonate with people in the 1980s. And that's, you know, I mentioned at the very beginning, the fact that he, he made hits in the 1960s and the 1970s and the 1980s. Um, is is pretty remarkable. Um, yeah. So I think that alone is worth celebrating. But sexual healing is a is a phenomenal, powerful song, which again has him just innovating, um, both in terms of the way that he uses lyrics uh, and and the way that he kind of takes the the style and the sound of the day and makes it his own. Um, and I I really just I I love that track. respect for the album itself. I often think about sexual healing in this term uh, I think like would that ha- if that had been on let's get it on would it have been the best song on let's get it on hmm and I'm not sure I don't but know I, but I think there's an argument it's that good 
Yeah. It's such a good song. And you're right. It, it updates his sound for the 80s without making it feel cheesy. Mm-hmm. It, there's nothing that dates on that. And yeah, again, yeah, it's, um, this is why you make you think like, well, what could have been? Anyway, Scott. Yeah, there's something to be said for him, you know, reinventing things. He was holed up in Belgium, I think. Yeah, that's and, right. And his label sends him essentially these these newfound, uh, newfangled sequencers and 808s and, and <laughs> rolling machine. And, and Marvin Gaye learns. Uh, now he's new wave, right? <laughs> yeah, and learns essentially on his own how, how to how to work this stuff. And uh, in doing so, really sets a template for a lot of what would follow in the decade. I mean, Sexual Healing is just a massive song. It might be, oh, I, I was going to say, it might be its most well-known, but heck, you know, Grapevine and others, and those 60 Motown hits get played an awful lot. But, I mean, Sexual Healing is an extremely well-known song, and that's just, that's that rolling drum machine sound. And, yeah. and him figuring out how to use it to his advantage along with his layered vocals, along with the the way that he would write. He was really involved in this project. Um, and, and it, you know, we just talked about, uh, you know, the, um, uh, Stevie Wonder, uh, Camille mentioned that there's that shout out. And same thing on Midnight Lady, which is a really good song on the album. Midnight Lady, you know, he's, he's you're a super freak, I'm a super freak. He, he, you know, name, name checks Rick James right in the middle of the, uh, right in the middle oh, yeah. of the song. <laughs> There's the, there's the one that's the big Bob Marley shout out. Which one is that one again? It's um, Third World Girl, which, which you know, mm-hmm. it basically is a Bob Marley reggae song filtered through Marvin Gaye yeah. by All But Name. So, yeah, I know he, and it doesn't sound that way, though. That's the good thing. It doesn't right. sound like a trite tribute. It's now, a good song. And then, uh, real quickly, it's, it's extremely hard to say what we missed out on, right? Because look at how his career unfolded in the, in the 70s. There were periods where he was very fallow and, and, and down. Not with, yeah. right. And so, who knows? Who knows what would have what happened next if he would have continued a creative renaissance, if he would have found himself you know, deeper into his drug problem because of the newfound wealth from a, a really well-selling album like Midnight Love. It, it's so hard Finally to say. Finally paying off the IRS and now That's what right. bad things can happen. Okay. He, he was never really going to pay off the IRS. We know that. <laughs> he he, he could have done it. He didn't want to. And, uh, well, you know, I'm going to say, I, I kind of respect that. That's a, I, I, I the law on the law one. Kind You're of a braver yeah. man than me. Right. Honestly. Oh, and there we go. That's the uh, Political Beats look at the career of Marvin Gaye. We come to the point of the episode where all three of your fine hosts give you two albums that you should own and five songs from the artists that you just must hear. We begin with our uh, guest, as always, Camille Foster, co-host of the Fifth Column, partner at Freethink. The floor is yours for your two albums and your and your five songs. Well, this is very, very hard. Um, but, I mean, it, I Want You is definitely my favorite Marvin Gaye album. It sort of turned me on to the, the rest of what was there. And we talked about Hear My Dear and just how remarkable a project that is. So that one gets my number two spot for the albums. In terms of five songs, 
um, I Want You, title track off that great album. Uh, come, uh, Got to Give It Up, uh, Come Get to This, Ain't No Mountain High Enough, and Symphony, which is a new favorite. Uh, so uh, my albums, I would go with um, I Want You. It, it's my favorite. And then I would say What's Going On, again, just to hear that break he made from the Motown of the 60s into really you know, treading his own path, starting with What's Going On. Uh, songs, uh, I, I can you write the story of Marvin Gaye without, without I Heard It Through the Grapevine. Is there someone who hasn't heard it yet, uh, just in case that's on my list? In terms of the duets, um, I think You're All I Need to Get By is the duet song I would include on, uh, on this list of five. Um, Come Live With Me, Angel, is on the list, as I mentioned earlier. Um, I, I think just to keep you satisfied, though it, though it doesn't really, f- it doesn't follow the, the theme of uh, Let's Get It On, is such an amazing, such an amazing track. Mm. And then uh, I think from what's... Not horny enough. <laughs> <laughs> and, then, uh, and then finally from what's going on, uh, uh, Inner City Blues, the very last track on that album oh, is yeah. one that you, you yeah. really need to hear. Uh, Jeff. Oh, God. Well, this is the cruelest thing ever. First of all, I'm going <laughs> to cheat. I'm going to cheat by saying that what you really need to get, if you are a Marvin Gaye virgin and you really just don't know anything about him except the occasional track, get The Master, 1961 to 1984. It's a four-CD box set. The first two discs are his Motown hit-making singles and duets era. The last two discs are his 70s and 80s material. It's just so perfect. You're never going to find a boxed set that more perfectly assembles all this disparate material into one place. And listen, you can just put it on for five hours, throw a party, and everyone's going to walk out thinking that was one of the best parties ever thrown. Um, but if I'm just talking about two albums, they have to come from the album era. So the first one I'll pick is Let's Get It On. As uh, dementedly carnal as it is, it's just, <laughs> it's 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 uh, such a perfect statement. It's 31 minutes, not a second too long. And then the last one is the opposite kind of end. It's Here My Dear, a double album, 75 minutes. Marvin literally just working out all of his issues with his divorce in front of your ears and eyes and it's just so naked it's so unafraid but the grooves are so perfect five songs oh shoot me i don't know what i'm gonna do okay baby don't you do it if i'm going from the early marvin gay singles era baby don't you do it holland does your holland at their best marvin at his best it was covered by a billion people for a reason you're the one for me his sort of under rated secret hit single that i love ain't no mountain high enough from the duet era how could you pick any other song than ain't no mountain high enough from what's going on i'm gonna say well mercy mercy me that's the one i would choose i I just think it's so beautiful and then last one from his 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 tough uh, late 70s brilliant divorce era it's gonna be you can leave but it's gonna cost you i'll never get over how brilliant i love that song the chorus is the best chorus on the record. Uh, I love how the bass guides it up into those weird suspensions throughout mm. it. Middle of it um, might even be in some weird way. Maybe my favorite Marvin Gaye song of all time. You can't Sing the song She said And then 
We've been able to introduce you guys to the, the genius of one of the great true R&B soul greats and uh, a guy who you know we've struggled to throw our arms around uh, in a two and a half hours or thereabouts. But uh, you know, there's always going to be more to cover. This guy is endlessly rewarding. Absolutely, that is Marvin Gaye, and we thank our guest for today's program camille foster co-host of the fifth column partner at freethink he helps produce original content about the people and ideas trying uh, helping to reshape the world find him on twitter at camille k-m-e-l-e camille thanks for joining us here on political beats thank you gentlemen it's been wonderful jeff another fine episode i believe see you until next time at esoteric cd on twitter my name is scott bertram find me on twitter at scott bertram subscribe to our feed new episodes itunes google play stitcher tune in or go right there to nationalreview.com and find the archives find us on twitter at political underscore beats this has been a presentation of national review this is political beats